This week, Australia's climate approach. There's arguably a much stronger case for saying rather than investing in these things, we should be throwing all our weight behind an unambiguously uh, renewable energy. Radicalisation pathways. That's only making the problem worse because that's actually exactly what the extremist groups want. They were, we're, we're essentially pushing that person more and more into the arms of the extremist. And a conversation with the ICRC's Kath Stewart. But when we arrived, one of the first questions was, why are you invading us? This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In April, President Biden held the first Leaders' Summit on Climate, which saw a number of countries commit to more ambitious reduction targets. Research intern Matthew Page speaks to Associate Professor Matt McDonald from the University of Queensland. They discuss Australia's hesitancy to set a target date for emission reductions and the impacts of climate on Australia's national security. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Just to get started, uh, I'd like to talk about how climate change has been described as a threat multiplier that exacerbates existing security threats. But now we're seeing many recognising that climate change itself is a catalyst for its own security challenges. Uh, In Australia, we've seen a greater frequency and intensity of extreme weather events like bushfires, floods and cyclones, and the use of ADF assistance in our own disaster responses. I'd love to get your thoughts on what other implications climate change will have for Australia's future national and regional security thinking. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. It's clearly you're right that natural disasters are at the forefront of our consideration and the role of the ADF potentially in humanitarian assistance disaster relief missions in response to natural disasters. Those apply obviously domestically in Australia but also in our immediate region and we know that Asia-Pacific's home to some of the countries that are most vulnerable to um, some of those natural disasters. So that's clearly central to our thinking in this space but some of the other implications for Australia include concerns about regional population displacement. Um, So people in the Pacific region who might be uh, displaced as a result of a combination of sea level rise or indeed uh, natural disasters. Um, and Australia, as we know, does have a tendency to view unauthorised or irregular arrivals through the lens of national security. So that will feature in terms of Australia's security thinking. There's also questions about how prepared or well positioned Australia is in terms of its military personnel, in terms of its Uh, defence equipment for the types of missions we might be undertaking, not just humanitarian assistance, disaster relief missions, but other expeditionary missions in the context of sort of axes of conflict in other parts of the world. So in some ways the ADF is well positioned to be thinking about these things because it's had this tendency to view, you know, decades in advance, which doesn't necessarily capture the way in which climate policy has been viewed in the Australian context. So questions around how effective our training is, personnel and equipment, whether our um, infrastructure, defence infrastructure obviously is one of the largest landowners in Australia, how well positioned is our infrastructure to the implications of, of climate change? These are all key considerations, as well as things like concern about future axes of conflict like um managing undocumented fishing in the um, South Pacific, contestation of the Antarctic. There's really a a wide range of um, concerns that Australia might have in terms of future axes of conflict, but obviously all those other 
secondary implications like displacement and the effects of natural disasters are uh, front and centre. A lot of the points you touched upon are conversations that are coming to the, the forefront uh, given the new Biden administration in the US. And we saw last week that President Biden held his much anticipated leaders' summit on climate, uh, where the US, Japan, the UK, and many other global leaders committed to more ambitious emissions reduction targets. Whereas Scott Morrison said he was more focused on the how of emissions reduction rather than the when. Why do you think we haven't set a date for our own net zero emissions target? And why is that a good idea? Uh, well, I don't think it is a good idea. I think we should actually commit to a particular, to a zero net zero emissions target by, by 2050. It is a bit of a puzzle because you do have the Morrison government saying, we're going to meet these, we're going to, we'll probably meet this, this target and we're going to put in place policy to get there. But we don't want to announce this. And it's a puzzle because the rest of the world saying this is one of the, other than an increase in our mitigation reduction commitments or our emissions reduction commitments, a commitment for a timetable to net zero emissions is precisely what we're being asked to do. And on both of those fronts, the Morrison government has refused to budge. There is a precedent. The Howard government was doing something similar with the Kyoto Protocol, saying we don't need to be a part of this, but, but at the same time continue to say we're going to meet our Kyoto commitments. But it seems as much about keeping a domestic constituency and in particular basically elements of his own party room on board. So it's much easier for the Morrison government and for Scott Morrison himself to sell um, we're going to invest more in technology that might indirectly actually help elements of the fossil fuel industry as currently constituted than it is to move towards phasing um, elements of our energy infrastructure out. Um, so I think really this start, the refusal to commit to net zero emissions is about the party room and some of the um, impediments within the government itself. Yeah, and that gives a, a great jumping off point to the kind of announcements we are seeing from Australia and, and Scott Morrison's government before and after the summit. So before there was investment announced for hydrogen and capture, carbon capture and storage technologies, and afterwards, just in the past couple of days, we've seen a new National Recovery and Resilience Agency announced. I wanted to get your thoughts on how effective you think these additional investments will be in addressing Australia's carbon emissions and climate change more broadly as a security threat. And if not, where, where should we be doing more? Yeah, good, good questions. I think most people would say there is certainly a role for um, especially clean Hydrogen. So not all hydrogen, of course, is necessarily good in terms of being carbon neutral. Some of it is, and the government's uh, announcement says it's really going to focus on, on clean hydrogen. That can potentially be a good thing. Similarly, carbon sequestration associated with sort of leakage, if you like, of emissions through the process of production can potentially be a good thing, but the level of investment that both require for the construction of the infrastructure in the first place is really significant. And there's also this lingering sense that we are ultimately subsidising some of the traditional industry groups that have been at the, the heart of Australia's energy um, production and that have been really driving, driving our emissions. So there's arguably a much stronger case for saying rather than investing in these things, we should be throwing all our weight behind unambiguously uh, renewable energy. 
that's on that side. On the, the question of the uh, commitment to resilience, that's that's clearly something that's appropriate to see. But as doctors are wont to tell us, prevention is probably better than cure. So I think most of us would like to see a lot more of a commitment to significant mitigation action and significant targets in terms of our commitment to mitigation being announced by the government rather than additional funds to help manage some of the effects of a problem that Australia disproportionately is um, contributing to. So in both of those senses, this is a, these initiatives are in and of themselves not necessarily bad things, but they also represent a political compromise from a government that's clearly under pressure but doesn't feel like it wants to go fully down the road of let's double down on our commitment to renewables, let's start the difficult project of transitioning away from any form of fossil fuel. It seems like a, a government that's, that's trying to compromise um, in that sense. Absolutely. And if I could throw it back just to uh, the new administration in the US, um, there's obviously a large contrast between how Trump and Biden each address the issue of climate change in their policy. Do you think that Biden's proactive approach is putting pressure on Australia, given the US is a major strategic partner and ally? And how do you see this relationship and others playing out? Look, it's a, it's a really good question. I think um, the most significant effect of the Biden administration really was its contrast to Trump. So in the past, a lot of conservative voices in Australia were able to say, well, we may not be increasing our commitments from 2015 and we may not be identifying a date to reach net zero, but at least unlike the US, uh, one of the world's largest contributors to the problem, at least we're still a part of the climate regime. So at one level, that has been removed through the Biden administration, that sense of this pressure release from having a major contributor and the most important international player all of a sudden moving to a position where it's engaging with the climate regime leaves Australia really isolated. So there's that. I think it's um, that has changed significantly. The Biden administration has certainly also indicated this is a key priority for them and has pushed hard to try to pressure other states to ramp up their ambition. And the fact that these announcements about hydrogen, about sequestration, about the resilience package that the, the government's announcing with the budget, yes, the budget is looming, but also this is very much the US position is casting a shadow over Australia and, and in some ways, those, those recent announcements are a response, I think, to the pressure Australia is under from the US. There's more immediate sense that Australia will be. There are issues in terms of relationships with the um, Pacific, given essentially for them this is, you know, Australia has committed to the Pacific step up, but at the same time for these states, this climate change is the fundamental existential issue and from their perspective, um, no amount of of aid commitments or reaching out diplomatically or the provision of different forms of economic incentive will, will basically take attention away from the fact that Australia is doing less than it should be on the question of an issue that's absolutely fundamental to them. So that's a big thing. And even negotiations with the EU and the UK are uh, in terms of trade agreements post-Brexit will be a big thing for Australia as well and lots of direct financial pressure from those countries um, alongside, I guess, diplomatic pressure associated with the lead-up to the next conference of the parties. So 
it's definitely the US position is putting pressure on Australia, but pressure's really coming internationally from almost all sources at the moment. And um, it's a bit of a perfect storm, I think, for the uh, Morrison government. Staying on international cooperation, uh, there's been a lot of debate around how effectively the US and China will be able to reach a point of cooperation and consensus, uh, especially given the environment of heightened geostrategic competition that we find ourselves in. I think this also applies to the Australia-China relationship in some way as well. Do you think that Biden or Australia will be able to reach uh, cooperation or a consensus point on this topic, given so many other issues on the table? Oh, look, that's a really tricky question to answer. It's it's hard to get a sense of whether climate change might emerge as as an issue that the Chinese government essentially says, well, if you're... you're um, pushing too hard on different things for us we might use this we might pull back on our commitments to it to get to net zero or to transition away from fossil fuels or even our commitment to achieve agreement on some of the outstanding issues that are going to be discussed in Glasgow at the end of the year it might be that China basically uses that need to have China on board as a as a kind of leverage but it's difficult to say the signs so far are, are positive but again it's not beyond the realm of possibility given China's recent predilection towards some form of economic coercion that is a slight concern I think in that context. And as we're just running out of time I think looking forward to COP26 in Glasgow in November is a great ending point. Given the flurry of climate commitments from uh, leaders at the Biden summit do you think there'll be a better chance for consensus this time around and particularly around the contentious Article 6 of the Paris Agreement? Um, do you think that there's political and uh, international recognition and push for more action in climate change this time around? Yeah, well, in some ways, the, the um, nature of the Paris Agreement made sure that um, essentially you didn't have to have all states agreeing to a particular target that they all signed off on at the same time. So in some ways... Um, the nature of the Paris Agreement minimises the extent to which one state can hold everyone else hostage. But you're right, that Article 6 is really about trying to make sure that states ramp up their um, nationally determined commitments to uh, emissions reduction. And we've seen some of that already, but whether we'll see all states committing to the type of targets that are consistent with achieving 1.5 degrees is, of course, up for question. And there's also outstanding issues around finance for loss and damage. There's issues around um, carbon markets. Both of those things were debated at length in Madrid and nothing really came of them in terms of substantive agreements. So there's a bit on the table and there's uh, obviously a lot at stake at Glasgow. Yes, yeah, so it'll definitely be interesting to see how Australia fits into all of it um, and really what comes out of it at the November meeting. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. Pleasure. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for having me. The financial and social impacts of COVID-19 and the increased time people are spending online have been described as factors which may make people more vulnerable to radicalisation. Dr Tegan Westendorf speaks to Nafiq Hamid, Research Fellow at Artists International, about pathways to radicalisation, including the significance of sacred values and the importance of community in preventing radicalisation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nafis, to talk about 
this really fascinating research that yourself and Clara Pretis did regarding um, radicalization and neuroscience. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I'll start with perhaps where my thinking is on this topic at the moment. And that is that in Australia at the moment, it is very accepted and I think reasonably so to talk about the impact of COVID lockdowns on the huge increase that we're seeing in um, various types of radical extremism and particularly a huge jump in right-wing extremism. And that this is being discussed in terms of that a lot of people have more time online, worse job prospects, and are generally feeling a huge lack of agency and um, not having a seat at the table, as per your article, in terms of what the future of their communities look like. So I'm really keen to understand this pathway a little bit more in terms of both enablers and potential disruptors for countering violent extremism, because I think that it's also really problematic if we only look at radicalization from the perspective of if someone's having a really hard time, that they are purely because of that more at risk. So perhaps we can start with this really interesting idea about sacred values that you wrote about. And I'd love it if you could tell us a bit about why this is so important to understanding the radicalization pathway. Yeah, so we got interested in studying this concept of sacred values, which are basically a subset of moral values. Um, what makes them exceptional is the fact that they're the kind of moral values that are so important that you wouldn't even think about compromising on them or negotiating with them uh, with so-called profane values, so material incentives, for example. Mm -hmm. And the concept actually didn't come from radicalization. The concept actually came from studying international relations. And the idea was that when you look at the way countries, whether it's Israelis or Palestinians or US and Russians or Indians and Pakistanis, the way that they, at a country to country level, relate to each other, sometimes certain issues of conflict, while they may be important, can be negotiated with using things like monetary incentives. You know, we'll give you, we'll, we'll, we'll sanction you, for example, if you don't agree to. To, wow. to doing X, Y, and Z, or we'll give you so much for an aid package if you do agree to X, Y, and Z. Wow. These countries can sometimes act like rational actors according to economic theory, which is sort of that they they respond to carrots and sticks, you know, incentives and disincentives works and costs and benefits are, are, are analyzed. The problem becomes when issues are considered sacred for some Palestinians' right of return is a sacred value or for some Kashmiris, either the, the independence of Kashmir or Kashmir belonging exclusively to Pakistan, for example, is a sacred value. And what we find in those contexts is that if you try to use these standard negotiating practices, it backfires. Mm -hmm. People double down on their, on their uh, values and they're not only uh, more likely to become sort of reticent to any negotiation, but they may even become violent. Mm -hmm. And the idea became, well, if this happens at a nation state level, maybe it's even happening at an individual level, at a person to person level. Maybe people just hold values that are so sacred to them that if you try to mess with their sacred values, so to speak, that they'll actually get angry and, and potentially violent and dissociate from even their social community and may even become more willing to be embraced by a, an extremist organization. 
So one of the findings in your paper then spoke about how participants who experienced social exclusion had, and you'll have to correct me on the neuroscience here, had higher activity in the rule processing part of the brain when expressing increased willingness to fight or die for both sacred and non-sacred values. So does this mean that someone who's experienced social exclusion can add what you call profane values or be steered towards having more things that they would embrace violence for on account of have experienced that social exclusion? Yeah. So but the, there was two studies. So, so the first study, which was a slightly less radicalized population, that was sort of the more vulnerable population. Mm-hmm. Yes, there we saw that um, parts of the brain that were associated with rule processing activated for sacred values. And that was a, a third replication at that point from two previous studies done by another research team in the U.S., not on a radicalized population, just on American university students. And what we think is going on there is that sacred values obviously don't require a whole lot of analysis because you you, you know what you think about those values. Mm-hmm. And so you don't need to take into account a lot of context. You don't need to think in too much of a case-specific way. You just, you, you know what the value is and you know what you think about it. Uh, now, non-sacred values are different. Non-sacred values people may be willing to negotiate on. They may be willing to um, think about in terms of negotiating with profane values or having material incentives. Uh, And the worrying part was when we saw people were socially excluded, essentially what we saw was that more values moved from the non-sacred column to the sacred column. Mm -hmm. So we started seeing neural activity that normally only happens for sacred values happening now for non-sacred values. And we started seeing people saying that they were more willing to fight and die for their non-sacred values, approaching the levels that they normally say only for sacred values. So what we think is going on is that social exclusion contributes to the sacralization process. And that's that, that that's a worrying trend because the more non-sacred values a person has, the more room you have for persuasion, for negotiation, for compromise. The more sacred values they have, the more difficult it is to actually negotiate with someone. The the fewer tools in your toolkit will actually work at trying to divert this person's pathway from uh-huh. violence. So one of my thoughts on reading that in your in your article was in considering the rise of right-wing extremism in a, right-wing violent extremism in Australia, I was trying to think about what it is that at risk people who progress down that pathway what it is that they are feeling excluded by. And if not all people who are feeling excluded by having a real say in the future of their community um, are radicalising, then this cohort must be feeling particularly excluded. This sounded ridiculous when, when, when I thought it at first, but if the, if the sacred values of this group are and we see some trends in, you know, deep misogyny, deep racism, deep anti-Semitism, and deep homophobia, among other things. Are the sacred values that this group perceive being violated, in fact, you know, the the white heteronormative patriarchy, and that they're actually responding to our communities moving in a direction that I, for example, would say is the right direction? Is that sort of over-dramatizing your findings or do you think that there's something there? 
many people feel social exclusion uh, from many different communities. And of course, you don't see them all radicalizing. And part of that is because the organization, some organizations, some movements are better suited to recruitment during certain times than others. So during 2014 to 2017, for example, ISIS had its caliphate. The caliphate was growing, it was expanding, and it was a particularly hopeful movement for some misguided Muslim youth around the world. And so they were inspired by it, that they, they were called, uh, they, 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 they felt inspired by the call to come and, and join the caliphate. But then once it dissipates, well, now all of a sudden it's not really a viable pathway to actually affect real change in people's lives anymore. So it loses some of its attraction. So I think part of the reason why we're seeing this spike around the world and a lot of right-wing extremism is that there's a lot of right-wing political parties, uh, right-wing groups, movements that are out there that have particularly, whose narrative particularly resonates with the people they're trying to recruit during this moment in time. They've positioned themselves as being the vanguard anti-establishment movement mm -hmm. under the current circumstances. So I think there's 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 a spike in in that particular movement's radicalization numbers in the same way it was for the caliphate during those those years ISIS held territory. So your research said that once a value is sacralized, it's very difficult to turn that back, but it did have some interesting insight in efforts to um, disrupt radicalization. So I'm thinking about sort of state-sponsored counter-violent extremist, uh, extremism programming, which is globally, there's a lot of effort to establish best practice um, in that regard. So I was hoping if you could tell me a bit more about subjects' capacity to engage their decision control mechanisms and deliberative deliberative rather reasoning so a lot of a lot of the the countering violent extremism programs that exist around the world focus on what's called counter messaging mm -hmm. the idea being that extremist groups have you know great messaging uh, means and, and 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 are very persuasive in terms of their narratives especially online in terms of propaganda in terms of you know magazines and videos and podcasts and youtube videos or, or what have you and so the idea is that there needs to be some form of counter messaging mm -hmm. and a lot of counter messaging can be can be quite good you know i i think of examples like uh rakas being slaughtered silently during the days of the caliphate, where you had people who were in Raqqa, the, the de facto capital of the caliphate, recording videos of what life was actually like on the streets, and then sending that sending that back, you know, uh, sending that out to the world saying, hey, whatever ISIS is telling you is going on here, this is the reality of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then there's examples of terrible counter messaging where like, you know, the US government turn away, think again, turn away program, which was sponsored by the US Department of Defense, basically trying to say, you know, little quick witty things on Twitter about how bad life is in the caliphate. And then ISIS people were just kind of quote retweeting it and then uh -huh. changing just a few words in the sentences to show the hypocrisy of how bad it is for the, how bad it was what the US was doing in Iraq and all over the world. But what we show is that you actually do need to engage a little bit more locally. 
if you really want to have an impact on people. And one thing that we found was that this the effect of social norms, the effect of amplifying people's perception of what they think their community thinks about their violence. Mm-hmm. So in the study, in the second study that we did, yeah, we found that we had these regions of the brain associated with deliberation and self-reflection that essentially were, were offline uh, when people were processing their sacred values. And then what we found was that when people saw that their community, uh, other other people not who were not radicalized, but people they still identified with from their ethnic group, basically agreed with the value but didn't agree with the violence, uh-huh. they conformed to the peers, their, their peers' response. They, they, they were influenced by their peers, and they lowered their own willingness to fight and die for those values. And the parts of the brain that were previously offline, associated with deliberation, self-reflection, came back online. Uh-huh. And that reactivation was actually correlated with the degree to which they conformed in terms of their willingness to fight and die. So it shows that peers can have an influence, if not necessarily in telling people your values are wrong, because as we know from our research, sacred values are quite stubborn, and when people realize that people disagree with their sacred values, they'll they'll try to distance themselves. But just in terms of showing that there's actually we don't agree with the with, with the pathways that you're taking to achieve these values, which is, for example, in this case, violent pathways. So it shows you peers can have an influence, but it only. But there's a caveat to this finding. It only works if the person, the person who you're trying to persuade sees that other group as their peers. Mm -hmm. And this is the key because uh, a lot of extremist groups, their goal is to create a wedge between those people who support their extremist movement and the broader community. Mm -hmm. So jihadists don't want their supporters to feel like they're part of the more general Muslim community, the non-extremists, right? Your, your, your allegiance is only to Al-Qaeda or only to ISIS and everybody else, even other Muslims, are basically all brainwashed infidels. And white nationalists will say the same thing or white supremacists will say the same thing, you know? White people are the reason for why we are in the condition that we're in because they have contributed to white genocide. They have, they're the ones who created multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. So... Don't be too influenced by them. You're not part of them. Instead, what they try to argue is that the white community you should be identifying with is the future generations who will be grateful for for, for what you've done. The same thing for, 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 for jihadists as well. Mm-hmm. And so the key is, this is what connects it back to the first finding about social exclusion, which is the only way you can really have an effect on extremist individual is if that person still on some level in their identity sees themselves as part of the non-extremist group. And this is the mistake I think a lot of us make just on an individual level. As soon as we see a friend or a family member um, posting things that are a bit worrying online about whatever movement they may become a part of, we'll start to argue back with that person publicly, or we'll, we'll, we'll unfollow them, or we'll just stop talking to them, we'll detach. And what that's only making the problem worse, because that's actually exactly what the extremist groups want. They were, we're, we're essentially pushing that person more and more into the arms of the extremist organization and therefore limiting the identity to just the extremist organization. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we stay connected, if we, if we stay engaged with that person, then what we're doing is we're still allowing that person to have a foot in the non-radical community. You know, their, their identity is on some level still overlapping. And so that's the way that social norms can actually influence a, a particular individual. It's a way of making sure that, 
that the only norms that they're uh, otherwise the only norms that they're that they care about are the norms of the extremist organization. Sure. They don't really care about the norms of the broader population. So the broader population has to stay connected, and also it serves as as the pathway through which this person can maybe one day return to to normal society. Absolutely. So when you look at cult, so when, when when you look at cults or when you look at any sort of um, movement where a person is totally detached from the rest of the world having even just that one person who they stayed in contact with can be the crucial lifeline for that for that individual to then you know when they're having a moment of disaffection if they have a moment of disaffection with the group they know that there is this this brother-in-law this cousin this childhood friend who they can reach out to in that moment who may be well poised to help them um, come up with an exit route and to bring them back into normal society that's so interesting. So it's really about that exposure, the sense checking, as opposed to some sort of imposition of what they should actually be thinking that's going to be effective. Exactly. Yeah. You don't want to really go after the the beliefs or values. And I think we all know this from our, from our, I mean, even if you're not an extremist or whatever, like when someone starts disagreeing with your moral political values on whatever issue, uh, even I notice I start to get defensive. Mm. And now uh, you can you can only imagine what it's like when the ideology that you believe in explicitly tells you to dissociate from from people who are pushing back on this value to to, to make those people your outgroup members, and especially if your ideology tells you to be violent against those people. Mm. And then on top of it, you're holding those values sacred. And on top of it, you have a whole group of people who will who will socially reward you mm-hmm. for that violence or for that. For, for, for outgrouping particular individual people. So it's um, it, it's very powerful. And even these small acts of social exclusion to someone who has all of these, has all of these factors present in their life can have a really an exponential effect in terms of how much it pushes them into the arms of the extremist organization. Thanks so much for joining me today, Nafis. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Finally, Brendan Nicholson is joined by Kath Stewart from the International Committee of the Red Cross for a conversation about her experiences working in the Australian Defence Force and the ICRC. Kath, it's great to meet you and thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Before you joined the International Committee of the Red Cross, you served in the ADF on operations as diverse as Bougainville and Iraq. Can you tell us a little about those experiences? Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me, Brendan, and I really appreciate ASPE giving me this opportunity to come and talk to you about my experiences, both with the Australian Defence Force, but also with the International Committee of the Red Cross, who I now work for. When I was with the Australian Defence Force, I went on four different major operations, starting in 1997 in Bougainville, and that was part of the Truce Monitoring Group. And that was a really interesting experience. As a young captain, I was able to command a troop and take them over to Bougainville. But I was in the forward group of only 20 people that were dropped into Bougainville. And it was really interesting to see the difference in perceptions of what we were there to do. So we had been invited by um, the Bougainvillean forces and the government of PNG to actually look at monitoring the ceasefire between the two of them. But when we arrived, one of the first questions was, why are you invading us? So that just gives you a a perspective of how people see the same circumstances in a completely different manner. 
My next operation, I was very lucky to be able to go to Syria, Israel and Lebanon with the UN Truth Supervisory Organisation as a UN peacekeeper. Again, completely out of my comfort zone um, at that stage, working with 22 different nations and being able to work out that you needed to understand people's motivations to be able to do your job and come up with mutually beneficial objectives and achieve those objectives. And everyone has different objectives. So you just need to not necessarily agree with them, but at least understand them. After that, I was lucky enough to go to the Solomon Islands in 2003. And that was, again, very different because it was a regional assistance operation. So we were working with um, 10 different regional partners, trying to re-establish um, the rule of law and the civilian structures within the Solomon Islands. Again, there, I was able to command nearly 100 people providing communications for the force that was there. And we did a lot of work being able to go out into the different villages. And we had to understand the local norms and customs to be able to get our message across what we were doing there and how we were aimed at helping the people of the Solomon Islands. Uh, my final deployment was actually to Kuwait. And there I was doing planning for Afghanistan and Iraq. And that was again working with coalition forces. And that just exposed me to the differences of different operations. But my last deployment was not with the ADF, but rather was with the International Committee of the Red Cross, where I've just spent two years in Israel and the occupied territories, working with the different organisations that impact the civilians that are living there and being uh, affected by armed conflict or the occupation that is ongoing. How did your military experience prepare you for your work with the Red Cross, given that you were involved in peacekeeping operations? The training and experience I got in the Australian Defence Force was excellent, and it did help me understand how important it is to listen to people when you go into a different situation. You have the training behind you, you rely on that training. You work with a team, and that is both in the Australian Defence Force, but also in the International Committee of the Red Cross. It is a highly professional motivated team and working with that team to achieve your outcomes is so important but that listening to the people that you are there to help is is fundamental and it's those negotiation skills those um, leadership and people skills that I learnt in the ADF that was able to help me make that transition from the Defence Force into the International Committee of the Red Cross. Given that a lot of your work in the ADF and a lot of your training was focused on successful peacekeeping and, and monitoring of peace agreements, did you have to make a, a mental shift from a military organisation to the Red Cross, which is a strictly neutral organisation? Absolutely. There is a need for a mental shift and it really does come down to the fact that the International Committee of the Red Cross is neutral, impartial and independent. The values, though, of the Australian Defence Force and the International Committee of the Red Cross are actually quite similar. And so that part of my transition was much easier. But the two organisations have very different objectives, but they have mutual interests. And it was my training in the ADF that allowed me to make that transition, but understanding 
that being neutral is incredibly important for the ICRC. It provides the access to the people on the ground, one that we want to talk to, those that carry weapons and influence the situation of the civilians that are caught up in the situation, but also the access to those people that are, we are seeking to help, the civilians that are there. And so it is important for that neutrality, that in independence and impartiality to be maintained at all times. Right. One of your early experiences with the Red Cross was when you were based in Israel, as you said. There you dealt with armed groups from both sides, while you presumably were unarmed. How did you find that experience and how were you received? And do you think your experience was any different because you're a woman? Absolutely, I was unarmed. The International uh, Red Cross does not carry arms at any time. And what it really reinforced to me is the importance of negotiation skills and the ability to use your wits to get the message across but maintain that neutrality and independence so that you can have a difficult but balanced conversation with the people that you're talking with. Obviously, as part of my work with the Red Cross, we strive to bring about a difference to people's lives through the activities that we do. That includes visiting detainees, reuniting families, supporting livelihood projects and helping improve the access to essential services of people on the ground. So all of those things needed me to be able to talk to those that carry weapons but also the people we were there to help. One of the things, obviously, I am a woman and that does influence how people interact with me, um, particularly in that part of the world. So it uh, makes a difference in how you are perceived. And again, it is because of different values, um, different cultural acceptances. So I needed to be aware of that. I didn't necessarily have to agree with some of their um, differences, but what I did was challenge negative assumptions about the fact that I was a woman. And that was done through my experience and my knowledge and being able to represent the International Committee of the Red Cross well and question those stereotypes and actually provide an example of positive change and how a more inclusive future, including women's opinions, could be incorporated into those different cultures. And did the women in those environments appreciate the fact that you were a woman? Did they feel that they could approach you and deal with you, communicate with you more easily because you were a woman? Certainly with the people, the civilians we were dealing with, they very much felt more able to approach me and have those conversations. Unfortunately, most of the people that carry weapons are male. So there were not as many women in that group that I spoke to, whether it be uh, the military or the non-state armed groups or the militias that we would deal with. It's mainly a male-dominated society. And so I would have to adjust it and just talk to them on a professional level and show them that I knew what I was talking about. I had shared experiences with them from my military background. I understood the language um, that they were talking and could respond in language that they understood. And that helped build the relationship and the trust. And therefore, we could talk professionally and we could move away from necessarily the gender issue.
How hard is it in that sort of environment to convince rival groups that the Red Cross is a firmly neutral organisation with a total focus on humanitarian work? It's incredibly difficult as different groups have different perceptions and you need to allay those fears and you do that by actually doing what you say you will do. It is incredibly important to the International Committee of the Red Cross, this neutrality, the partiality and the independence. And the other part of it is the confidential dialogue that we have, that these groups know that what we talk about will not be exposed to other people. We bring our concerns to them. We raise those concerns about potential violations of international humanitarian law, issues of their impact on the civilians on the ground, and we talk to them about it, and then we also leave it up to them to issue with it, uh, to deal with it as they um, can within their own laws and within the realm of international humanitarian law. Yeah, well, part of your experience with the ADF was when you were seconded to the United Nations as a peacekeeping observer. How did that experience compare with your more recent time with the Red Cross? It's a very different experience because you are still a member of the military when you are a UN military observer. So you have behind you your uniform, you have other elements of the peacekeeping force that are armed, you have a United Nations mandate, um, and so that makes a difference to how you are perceived by various organisations. It doesn't necessarily grant you any more safety or security, though, because some of the organisations don't respect that UN mandate or um, what you are there to achieve. Whereas with the International Committee of the Red Cross, I think because it's significant history, you know, nearly 170 years of history of being able to show that it does what it says it will do, provides us that access, acceptance, and therefore that reinforces our own security, even though we are unarmed. And sometimes we are talking about difficult issues that the groups don't really want to talk about, but it's really important that we do that to raise the awareness of the impact they are having, the negative impact they are having on the civilians on the ground. Look, to some extent you've covered this, but how difficult is it to do your job at the Red Cross, given that you must have at least a working knowledge of international law, some negotiating skills, you must be level-headed and persuasive in dangerous situations, and you must be conscious of the need to prevent such situations escalating, and to do all of this knowing that you are armed with and protected by only your neutrality and your wits. It's a great organisation, the International Committee of the Red Cross, as I say, with so much history and a great professional and committed team behind you. So when I joined the International Committee of the Red Cross, I did six weeks of training, which covered the basics of international humanitarian law. I'm not a lawyer, but um, international humanitarian law is the cornerstone of the ICRC's mandate and so I have to have that knowledge and the ICRC provided me with that knowledge. There's also the negotiation skills. Humanitarian diplomacy is one of the key areas that we work towards. Being able to influence decision makers so that they can make good decisions that are actually to the benefit of the civilians on the ground and those that are most in need. So that's an area that 
they put a lot of emphasis on. And as well as that, obviously, I can talk underwater. So I think I was quite well with being able to talk to all of these people that I had to talk to and use language that they understood, language that showed them that I understood what they considered the military necessity, but I balanced that against what the needs were of the people on the ground that were suffering because of their presence or um, actions that they were taking. So it's difficult, but it's certainly looking at what you are there to do, the fact that you are there to help people and that if you don't do that, their lives are impacted quite badly. So when you can see what your objective is, when you remember that objective, it's really easy to be able to use that knowledge, your wits, to get the best outcome for them. Well, Kath, we weren't underwater, but that was fascinating. And thanks very much for spending the time with us. Thanks very much. Really appreciate your time, Brendan. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week.